Good people, what's good with you? It's me, Pastor Tim. This is another podcast with Pastor Tim, and I am delighted and excited to share with all of you what God has uh, put on my heart, what he's given me. Um, I know last time we talked, we were on You Lose, which I thought was dope, and um, I have some more for that. But I've transitioned from uh, You Lose, and I've been talking about uh, collateral damage. I've been on this discussion about collateral damage, and um, I want to just jump right into it with you guys, but I really want to pray first. Um, Father, we just thank you, God, for today. We thank you for the, this moment. We thank you for the opportunity to be called yours. Uh, God, I smile when I think about the relationship that uh, you've allowed us to have with you, uh, this direct interaction, God, this 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 opportunity to know you more closely, God, but uh, those moments when you expose more of who you are uh, to me in prayer, God, literally leave me in awe of who you are. So God, I just say thank you. I say thank you for the ability to uh, share the word with others. God, I say thank you for the opportunity to be used by you. Uh, But more importantly, Father, I say thank you for uh, what I believe you're doing through this generation of believers. Uh, God, I pray even now that you would continue to cover the generation, uh, that you would expose them to who you are, uh, that you would allow them to not become lost in everything that's going on around them, God, but they would focus more directly on you. Uh, Let their relationship with you be their focal point. Uh, Let them set goals that bring them closer to you, Father. Uh, Allow us to live a lifestyle that's never compromised, but one uh, that you could be glorified through. So even now, God, you set the standard to God and let us meet it. Uh, We love you, honor and praise your holy and righteous name, Father. It is in your son Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Yo, let's do it, guys. So I'm on this topic about collateral damage. And uh, whenever you think about collateral damage, the first thing that I think about is uh, casualties of war. Uh, When you think about collateral damage, it's often discussed from the perspective of, uh, yeah, I know that uh, some people may get hurt along the way, but it's really just you know, the casualties of war. It's the necessary collateral damage. And so when you think about collateral damage, you think about it in that regard, or if you break it apart and you look at collateral um, by itself, you would look at collateral sometimes being something that sustains or, or secures your ability to purchase something else, right? So Uh, If you're looking in terms of you're thinking about in terms of like a home loan, uh, the house becomes collateral for the loan. Uh, But if you really look at the origin of the word collateral, collateral deals with something more specific like um, belonging to the same ancestral stock, but not in a direct line of descent. So collateral really deals with people. Walk with me. Collateral really deals with people and not necessarily stuff or things. So it, 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 if we really look at it, the perspective that we should have when we think about collateral damage, we should be thinking about um, ancestral stock, lineage, bloodline, heritage, connection, relationship, because that's really the, the, the nucleus of that word and the meaning behind that word, collateral. 
And of course, when we look at damage, damage becomes this 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 concept of physical harm that's caused to something in such a way that it impairs its value or its usefulness or the normal functionality of what it was. So when I look at damage, I have to then ask myself, I'm either causing damage or I am the product of being damaged. So when I think about collateral damage, I don't think about it in terms of um, uh, ancestral stock that's damaged, but I think about it in reverse and I think about damaged collateral. I think about the people that have become harmed by their lineage. The, the people that have uh, become broken or somewhat impaired for use or not able to function in normal capacity because of the damage. So collateral damage, damage collateral. I'm thinking about the people and the casualties that have existed uh, far beyond what we would have imagined that should have existed simply because someone made a decision that did not necessarily Think about the long-term implications of the decisions made. So today I'm going to spend a little bit of time in 2 Samuel, and I'm going to read a verse in 2 Samuel uh, 12, but then I'm going to backtrack and give you guys the story really behind everything concerning this particular topic, collateral damage, collateral damage. So we have we have a scenario where uh, people make decisions not often thinking about the implication that it's going to have long term. So when I was teaching last week, I started talking about the children of Israel and I was talking about the children of Israel and how they found themselves in the wilderness for an extended period of time. The Bible says that they were in the wilderness for 40 years now, 40 years in our terms in present day in the in the present day context, 40 years is equivalent to two generations. Every 20 year block is roughly categorized as being a generation every 20 years. So so the children of Israel wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. And what I said last week was they ended up 40 years in the wilderness, literally delaying the place of promise that God intended for the generation behind the generations that were wandering. So your mommy and your daddy spent 40 years trying to figure something out. And because they couldn't quite figure it out, it took so much longer for you to, to, to literally operate in your place of promise because you were waiting for the generations prior to figure some things out. And so they couldn't quite get it together. So they spent 40 years in a place trying to figure out what life should look like. And you've had to wait. And so the generations behind you are simply waiting on you to figure things out so that you can walk in your place of promise and unlock what is supposed to be released to the next generation. So the children of Israel, 40 years in a place. And the generations behind them are waiting to actually walk into the place that was prescribed for them by God. And so you have to ask yourself this very simple question. What am I holding up for the generations behind me? Because I can't quite seem to figure out where God has been trying to take me over the last few years. But it's bigger than that. 
because what I said last week as I was teaching, I said um, one of the things that we have to be careful to consider is this. Grace should never be the replacement for obedience. Right. The Bible has already shared with us that obedience is greater than any sacrifice. But the reality is we want to slap grace on things where God simply was looking for our obedience from the very beginning. And so grace suggests something else. Grace to me suggests recovery. Grace suggests to me um, a redemption. Grace suggests to me that God is bringing me back or uh, fixing something that's taken place. But the reality is if we simply lived out in the place where God designed for us to be in a place of obedience, sometimes we would find that we wouldn't need grace in the places where God has demanded obedience from us. Obedience is better than any sacrifice that we would ever render. And although I know that God is so faithful and so loving that he would extend his grace to us, uh, Paul said it this way. He said, where sin is, grace abounds much more. But should we continue to sin? God forbid. Because he recognizes that there's something much more powerful if we simply walk in obedience. So that's just a little bit of where I started last week. And so I continue to, of course, ask God like, okay, uh, when I think about collateral damage, what is it that you really want me to understand? But more specifically, what am I going to share? So I started thinking about how uh, we will make a decision in the moment that we won't recognize the rippling effects of it. So here we have Abraham out on the road with his wife and they are encountered by a group of individuals. And in the moment, Abraham uh, decides that it's best for him to lie and say that his wife is not his wife, that she's his sister, simply because he's looking to avoid a, a, a certain type of confrontation. So what he does in this moment is he, he lies and he unlocks in his generation or in his lineage a spirit of lying. So now when his son is faced with the exact same scenario, his son does exactly what his father does. And he then lies too, putting both women at risk of committing adultery, not just them, but also putting the men that they would encounter at the same risk of sin simply because they lied. But but would the story be different if Abraham had chosen to maintain his level of righteousness to respond adequately and not make a decision in the moment that would cause a compromise in his lineage? And so this is the reality, good people like, yo, you got to you have to uh, look yourself in the mirror and ask yourself, am I going to make a decision today that is going to have a powerful impact on my uh, children and my grandchildren for the good? Or am I unlocking and releasing something in my lineage that is going to hold them up and set them back? I know that it's like, you know, that's the hard part. Right. And so that's where I got to where I am in the text today with David. So I'm going to read. Um, I'm going to read. Second Samuel 12. I'm going to read 13 and. 14. 
I'm reading from New Living Translation. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you. There's that grace. The Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. The amazing grace of God. You won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, this is verse 14. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord, by doing this, your child will die. So, so let me go back and give you guys the backstory. King David, back in 2 Samuel 11, is up early one morning, walking on the rooftop of his palace. And he had just sent his men out to war. Uh, the men are engaged in war and they're out taking care of business. David stays back. David's on the rooftop. And at a distance, David sees this lovely woman bathing. And of course, you guys are familiar with the story. He sees Bathsheba. That Bathsheba is uh, in the water. Uh, the Bible says that she is uh, concluding her uh, purification cycle. She has just finished her menstrual cycle and now she's bathing. And David sees this woman at afar and he recognizes her beauty. So he engages one of his friends and says, yo, I need to find out who she is. He finds out who she is. And as the Bible describes who she is, they say, oh, she's Bathsheba. But they don't leave it there. They go on to say she's the she's the wife of Uriah. And so the Bible, which I love, the Bible does not um, make mention of who she is without showing the association and the connection of who she is as a wife. Oh, yeah, that's Uriah's wife. Uh, he's out at war. And so at this moment, David makes a decision. David makes a decision to have Bathsheba come to where he is. And when she does, he lies with her to know her. They do the grown up, y'all. OK, they, they're getting busy. All right. And, and, and David is simply captivated by the beauty of this woman. And he doesn't take into consideration the fact that this woman isn't a woman that he can have because she belongs to someone else. Sometimes we want to touch things that God has not given us the um, uh, go ahead on. We, we want to touch things that have not been sanctioned by God. We want to lay our hands on things that have not been ordained, nor are they the purpose or the will of God for us in that moment. And so David makes a decision to be with this woman. And when he lies down with her, he finds out later that he got her pregnant. What I want to say to you guys is uh, oftentimes when we find ourselves operating outside of the will of God, what we will find as a result of that of those bad decisions is a catastrophic scenario on the other side. Now, here, David, even though he's king, he has gotten another man's wife pregnant. And now that she's pregnant, he has to determine what is it that he's going to do now that this woman is pregnant. So now, just as we would do, he starts plotting and scheming, trying to figure out how he's going to cover up what he's done. 
frantically trying to figure out his next best move, he beckons or summons for him to come to the palace. And when he summons for him to come to the palace, they now sit down and he's trying to eat with them. And, and, and the entire time, David is plotting and scheming, trying to get Uriah uh, intoxicated enough so that he can get him home to his wife. So, 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 so with the thought that if I can get him home with his wife and I can convince them to uh, sleep together and if she's pregnant, he will think it's his. Let me tell y'all, some of these schemes and things that y'all see present day, uh, they not new. For the Bible says that there's nothing new under the sun. Yo, some, 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 some of y'all been plotting and scheming the same way for a long time. But the reality is this. David's trying to cover up something that he should never have had himself in from the very beginning. And the reality is we find ourselves as believers doing the same thing because we we because we've determined that this is something we want. We don't even consider whether or not this is something that God would allow us to have. David never goes to God. David never asks if he can have her. David never waits to see if uh, things would p- play out in his favor. He makes a move that is contrary to God's standard of righteousness. And as a result, catastrophe is on the other side of it. And the only remedy for what he's doing is now to figure out how do I get this man to lay down with his wife so that he can believe that this kid that I've placed inside of his wife is his. So Uriah being the stand up guy he is. And let me let me just pause for a minute and tell you Uriah is. This man who's doing everything he believes he should be doing the right way. He's in the army. He's serving. He's a soldier. He's at battle and his king calls him. He comes back. He has dinner with the king because the king said, let's eat together. He eats with the king. He drinks with the king, even though he wouldn't normally be drinking. And when the king sends him home to be with his wife, Uriah finds himself at the gate outside the palace falling asleep there, not because he's too drunk. But because of the integrity on the inside of him, he says, I can't go and feel comfortable going home to sleep with my wife, to to drink and and, and be married when I know my men that I walk with are out there in battle. It wouldn't be stand up for me. It it wouldn't be the type of integrity that I wish to deal with or, or the aspect that I would desire to walk from knowing who I am. So he sleeps outside the palace. The king finds out and the king's like, yo, uh, we got to figure this thing out. So he makes a second attempt to do the same thing. But Uriah being who he is, it doesn't happen. So Uriah never sleeps with Bathsheba when he comes back from war because he's there where the king has him. So the king, David, now has a new plan. And what he does is he prepares a letter for Uriah to carry back to the leader of the army and tell him, hey, put Uriah on the front line. In battle. And the integrity of Uriah is so dope because he doesn't even open the letter to look to see what the king wrote that he's sending back to the chief of the army. And he has no idea that what he's carrying is the very thing that's going to get him killed. He's carrying the very thing that's going to place him on the front line that's going to get him killed. And and David, simply because of the decision that he made, doesn't consider the collateral damage along the way. 
All he could see was that in the moment he wanted to satisfy his flesh and he wanted to do what gratified him the most. He wanted to sleep with Bathsheba because she was bad. She was cold with it. And that was more important to him than maintaining his integrity. That was more important to him than walking in obedience. It was more important to him than choosing righteousness in that moment. And so we never considered the collateral damage. And so now Uriah is carrying his letter back to the chief of the army that's going to get him put on the front line. That's ultimately going to get him killed. And everybody walking in obedience, they do exactly what they're told to do. So Uriah carries the letter back. He takes the letter back to the chief of the army. The chief of the army places him on the front line. And what happens? Uriah dies. And now that he's dead, the, the chief of the army is trying to figure out how do I communicate with King David that I have allowed this man or I've allowed our army to be vulnerable enough that he would be consumed in war. This is yet another person that's impacted by the decision making of David. And David doesn't consider when he makes this move with Bathsheba that. All these things are going to play out the way they are. So now Uriah is a casualty of war and the chief of the army is conflicted because he's trying to figure out how he's going to communicate to the to the king what has happened at battle. And not only that. Bathsheba finds herself mourning over the loss. Of her husband. These are the casualties that have existed simply because David has made a decision that did not line up with what God's standard was for his life. Collateral damage. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. I know. I got to get with her. So so because I got to get with her, these people got to go. Uriah, you got to die. But David never considers what ultimately has to happen because he only considered what he wanted to do in the moment. Walk with me. Uriah's dead. Bathsheba's mourning. Chief army dude is conflicted. And now David is in a place where he can now have Bathsheba because she no longer belongs to Uriah. And so quite naturally, some might think that the story would go on and that things would be exactly as they should be. But that's not the case, because when we go and we read what we read in Second Samuel uh, 12, 13 and 14, David is having a conversation with the prophet and the prophet is releasing to David that the son that's been consumed, the son that's been conceived now has to go. And so we don't consider in the moment. What's going to happen? But as I'm reading the text, I'm like, yo, Bathsheba was pregnant. Where's this kid? And so so what happens is we don't consider. Hear me. We don't consider what we may become pregnant with when we make a decision that's contrary to what God has called for us to do. And now you find yourself pregnant with something out of a place that wasn't sanctioned by God. And now you have to figure out how do you not only carry this thing, but now you've got to birth something into the world that was that was created out of a place of compromise. 
And so now you've got this child that exists in this compromised state. Or if I put it in your lap and make it more personal, you've allowed yourself to become consumed with something that you now believe you need to give birth to. But it was conceived out of a place that was not sanctioned by God. So you have a desire, but it may not necessarily be a holy desire or you've now become infused with something that wasn't sanctioned by God. And now we got to figure out what we do with it. And so what happens is the same thing that happens with the conversation with David. The Bible says that God, David repented of his sin. He acknowledged the fact that he sinned. And this is something that I think is absolutely important because we as believers, oftentimes we walk around as if uh, just just, well, I know that grace covers me and so I'm good. But you still have to take some accountability for the decisions that you've made that are outside of the will of God. And so David recognizes I, I did something that was not in your will, Father, and I need to acknowledge what I've done. And he said, I've sinned. And the Bible says all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory. But thanks. I'm just thankful that God's grace will cover us. But the reality is don't don't put grace in places where obedience should exist. So David confessed to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you. And let me tell you, good people. Yo, God will release his forgiveness over you when you acknowledge what you've done. But the reality is there still has to be something that happens. And in this particular case, the seed has to die. And so David goes through all of these things. He he begins to mourn. He he begins to fast. He finds himself praying. He refuses to eat. He he doesn't want to get dressed. He's simply trying to get the attention of God because he wants God to restore and not kill this kid. But it caused me to think about the reality, which is this. Adam and Eve were in the garden. And while Adam and Eve were in the garden, God gave them instructions. He places expectation upon Adam and Eve, more specifically Adam when they were in the garden. And he said, all these trees you can eat from, but this particular tree you can't touch. And so when they when they found themselves in a compromised place, hear me, when Adam and Eve found themselves in a compromised place after having eaten from the tree that they should not have touched, God then had to kick them out of the garden. Why did God kick them out of the garden? God kicks them out of the garden because in the garden existed the tree of life. And if Adam and Eve had eaten from the tree of life after they had eaten from the tree of uh, of the forbidden fruit, they would live forever in a compromised, broken state, and God couldn't have that. And so the only way to deal with what was going on was I got to kick you. I have to cut you off. I have to end the relationship as it existed because it can't live in this broken state forever. And so so David and Bathsheba give birth to this son and this son is the result of a compromised decision and a result of sin. And the only thing that God can do is kill the seed. And so the reality is this. You have some things in your life that you have to allow God to kill because if you don't allow God to kill it, it will exist forever in a broken state and you risk 
passing that down through your lineage year over year or generation after generation, bloodline through bloodline, forever broken. And so some of this stuff that you battle with generationally is a result of some bad decision making on the generations prior to. But you have to have a determination inside of you that you choose righteousness and that it ends with you and that you won't carry on this brokenness that has existed in your bloodline. So what's that look like? David and Bathsheba have a kid. That's birthed out of a compromised decision. That's birthed out of a place of brokenness. That's birthed out of a place of disobedience. And the result is it can't exist in this broken state forever. Why do you say broken state? Because David's a man that's blessed. And there's something that's going to be released through David. But it can't be released in this broken state. So God has to kill off this thing that can't exist the way it does right now. And so what we didn't know when David connects with Bathsheba is that they were going to bring forth a child and that child's name was Solomon. So Solomon that we hear about, Solomon that we know about this, this successor of David is the result of a relationship between David and Bathsheba because Solomon's mom is Bathsheba. And so sometimes we find ourselves in this place where uh, we think that we're really close to what God is trying to do, but we find ourselves somewhat impatient to God's movement. And so what would have happened if David and Bathsheba recognized that maybe there is something that would brew between the two of us, but we have to allow God's perfect timing to bring us in to relationship. Because quite naturally, uh, with Uriah being a soldier in the army, uh, one might have a concluding thought that he would have been a casualty of war anyway. It's quite possible and quite natural to believe that while he was out at battle, he could have died out at battle in a natural way. But he died as a result of some plotting and some scheming on the part of David. And so David and Bathsheba have this kid. David is trying his best to get the attention of God so much so that he refuses to eat. And he's asking God, don't let him die. Let him live. And God says no. And, and just like David, we, the believers, find ourselves in this tug of war where we're trying to convince God that something should exist in our lives beyond a certain point. And God's trying to hammer in your head that this can't exist in your life this way. You got to let me kill it off. You got to let this thing go. You got to turn this particular thing over to me so that I can do what I'm trying to do in your life. But if we can't get about our if we can't get out of our own way. If we can't find ourselves wanting to live based on God's standard of righteousness, if we can't find ourselves wanting to allow discipline to be what defines us or a characteristic attribute of who we are, then how can we ever be who God really wants us to be? 
And if we really look back at some of the things that we feel like we desire, we would recognize that some of the stuff we want was a birth out of compromised relationship. If we really be truthful with ourselves and we really begin to search on the inside of us, we would begin to identify those things that have not been released to us by God. 